Hello, hello. This is not Dave Chang. This is Isaac Lee, producer of this podcast. Just wanted to pop in and plug up the top here another show here on the Ringer Podcast Network, The Watch, our excellent television podcast hosted by Chris Ryan and Andy Greenwald. And I specifically wanted to shout them out because they recently did a segment on the pilot for Top Chef Portland. And knowing our audience here, I have a feeling a lot of you are fans of Top Chef. So are Chris and Andy, and I believe they're going to be reacting to the season as it goes along. So whether it be for that or for larger conversations about television, I strongly encourage you to check out The Watch on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Pure Leaf Iced Tea. Great iced tea takes you somewhere else like new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea that we have here at the Spotify Studios and drink quite a bit where unexpectedly blackberry flavor transports you to a very delicious place. So refreshing you may never want to leave. You will eventually have to though, but take your time. Try new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Visit Amazon.com slash Pure Leaf and enter 20 Pure Leaf. That's 20 Pure Leaf for 20% off your purchase of new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Doma Media. Thank you, Yola Tengo, as always. Today, we have as our guest, the Oscar-nominated director, Isaac Chung, who directed Mirari. You should check it out if you haven't seen it yet. Uh, We've talked about it quite a bit. It's an incredible movie, very moving on my end, and many people that are immigrants. But uh, the funny thing is, it's not just an immigrant story. It's an American story. And in some ways, it's a marriage story. It's a lot of different things. It's a wonderful film. Highly encourage you guys to check it out. It's out right now. Nominated for six Oscars, including Best Director, Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actress, I think Best Original Screenplay. Uh, We talk a lot about Asian Americans in this episode, Asian Americans in entertainment. And uh, man, Smart, smart guy, and uh, I'm so happy for his success for this film and very excited to check out what Isaac does next. But before we get in this episode, one of the things that uh, Mirari does so well is talk about Asian produce. And I don't want to reveal too much of the film if you haven't seen it, but you know, when my parents came to this country, they didn't really have the same ingredients. It's a story you hear time and time again when you're trying to recreate recipes in another country and you can't get the right ingredients. So you sort of have to wait till someone decides to plant these crops and grows it themselves because these are not native. These are not things that people have planted like a moo radish, which is not daikon. It's very different. It's a important ingredient in Korean cuisine. It's just something that we didn't have till much later. I remember when my mom first saw moo radish she was over the moon. And these are things now when you go to an Asian supermarket, it's just commonplace. But the selection back then in the early 80s, late 70s, was slim to none. And we've talked a lot about Asian supermarkets in this podcast, particularly this past year. And I just remember as a kid loving to go to these small, they were very small and packed Asian supermarkets. And, uh, I loved it. Just trying to see all these ingredients that didn't exist uh, at the local giant or Safeway supermarkets. And I think about it a lot now as I have a lot of availability to Asian supermarkets that are just packed with Asian products. So I see this as progress because growing up, there wasn't this diversity in snacks, in noodles, in kinds of rice. I mean, literally, if you go to the Asian supermarket, you can see like, honestly, like 20 different kinds maybe a hundred kinds of instant ramen. There were one or two of all of these things back when I was growing up, one or two kinds of candy. So it really 
this movie really moved me because it made me realize just how hard it was to get ingredients. And it wasn't just Asian ingredients. I've talked to other chefs that were from Europe and they couldn't get fresh chives in the 80s. You know, things that we take for granted now. And it's part of a larger conversation of appreciating the things that you can't have. So you can appreciate the things that you do have. And this movie made me think about that. And it's amazing to think the diversity of Asian ingredients, not just of Korean food, Japanese, Chinese food, but Indian food, Filipino food. Um, I just don't know of any other country where you can get all of this stuff. So for all the shit talk about America, these are one of the really amazing things that have happened over the past 30 plus years is this increase of supply and inventory of things that make people feel more at home. You don't have to make substitutions. But I'd also argue that these substitutions, making food with local ingredients or things like that, I find to be infinitely fascinating. This is a whole nother conversation, but it's something I've always thought about when making dishes. You know, if my ancestors moved to Charleston, South Carolina 250 years ago, would they be using grits? Would they be using smoked ham? Would they be using different products of, of that area? Even bourbon, who knows? And I, I think the answer is yes. And you incorporate certain things and you make it part of your cuisine. And that's how food evolves. But this movie touched upon a lot of things. But one of which that we don't talk too much in this conversation with Isaac was just how far America has come, even in places where the movie takes place like Arkansas. You know, the diaspora of people from Korea, of Asia, isn't just in the major metropolitan cities. I mean, listen, I grew up in Northern Virginia. It has one of the largest Korean populations in America today. And um, it's a story that I think will resonate with a lot of people. So please check out Mirari. And if you are a little bit older, like if in your, your 40s, late 40s, maybe even early 50s, remind yourself of just how far it's come if you've been in this country long enough to think about the bounty of products that are actually now grown in America. And it's not just America. It's in Australia. When I spend time there, one of the reasons why the Southeast Asian food is so good in Australia is because not just the climate, like people are growing these things. And it's probably a little bit of a lag time, 10 to 20 years before immigrants come to a place and then the food and the supply chain of that food sort of gets dialed in. And we're at a place right now where you can't get everything. Like if you go to Korea, if you go to Japan, it's still quality is different. There's more diversity, but it's pretty shocking if I have to think about where it all started. Which leads me to my next topic, uh, just a little forecasting and prediction here. A lot of people ask me where I think food is going to go, and I have a lot of thoughts. We're working on a Hulu show right now about the future of food. But I've been talking to some of my friends, some of the people that used to work with me, people that have put their own restaurant ideas and dreams on hold as to where they should open up. And a lot of these people have spent their careers trying to make a life in fine dining, doing something on the higher end with a higher check average. And for those that are listening, I don't want anyone to sort of think just because somebody wants to make high end, they're being snotty or elitist. That's not the case, especially the people that are making this food. It's working with the very best product. And, and in some ways, it's not just an artisan or craftsman. Like They're trying to express themselves in the only way they feel they can. And I think it's a beautiful thing. And this pandemic has caused a lot of people to question if there's room for them to make a degustation menu that might be 250 300 400 bucks. I do feel that there's a place for this kind of food. And it's not just that, right? It's just kind of dining in general. And one of my predictions is a lot of talent has left the centers of Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York City, and places that have already had a vibrant culinary scene, I think are going to really benefit with a lot of this transplant behavior where a lot of people are like, I don't have to stay in the city. I can go anywhere. I can work anywhere. One of the places that it's clearly benefited has been Miami South Beach area. And I don't go there all that much. We've always entertained the idea of opening a restaurant there. and Maybe one day we will. But I know a lot of people, a lot of my friends that have already opened up 
a restaurant there, already have several restaurants down there. My my friends that are owners of restaurants in that area all love the clientele. And it's not nearly as, yes, it's at times seasonal. It's a booming business and it was booming before the pandemic. And from what I've been told, we don't have to go into the COVID stuff. I think there's a, a lot of pros, a lot of cons. I'm not opining on the safety issues of dining in or dining out down there. I'm now projecting where I think food will be. And I think in the next five, 10 years, you're going to see maybe South Beach, Miami area become one of the, like, it's always been a hot destination, clearly. But I think it's going to be more than going down there for the weather and the nightlife. And it already has an incredibly rich food scene. But I think from what I hear, the grapevine, you're having a lot of chefs thinking about, you know, instead of trying to open up their best-in-class restaurant, a restaurant that's trying to go for two, three Michelin stars in, say, San Francisco, they're now thinking about opening up in Florida. This is where, it, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but there's a lot more talk about South Beach than ever before. And a lot of people, if you sort of follow food media, they're saying, you know, it's just like how busy it is. And again, my friends that have restaurants, that own restaurants down in the South Beach, Miami area, they're just like, this is crazy. It is insanely busy. And it's almost like life pre-pandemic levels, but I'm not sure what's going to happen. And... um but I do think a lot more talent is going to go down to that area. And I'm interested to see how that's going to play out. So that's not necessarily a prediction. A lot of people are writing about it right now, but I think what you're going to have are a quality of chefs that would normally want to stay in the San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York City markets, sort of the big three, are really contemplating not just Miami, you know, but opening up maybe in Dallas, in Austin, in Florida. It's not just the tech companies that are moving out to these places, but all businesses. And I'm interested to see how that's going to play out because, I mean, I don't know. Like, it's already got a pretty vibrant food scene. So I'm just throwing it out there. It might be interesting to see what kind of restaurants, new restaurants open up down there and how that plays out. I think it could be a big trend. That's all I'm saying. Last topic I wanted to talk about, as people get vaccinated and as restaurants start gearing up, the past sort of three, four weeks has been extremely busy for restaurants around the country. New York City, Los Angeles, I know people are itching. I certainly have to go out, to dine in, to dine out. Uh, a lot of people now are vaccinated. And I think not a lot. Still a lot more people need to be, but people feel a bit safer doing so. But one thing that I don't think has been discussed too much is the hiring shortage. And I think we're going to have this summer of gluttony. There's going to be just an eating orgy this summer going into the fall. How long that lasts, I don't know, but it's sort of beginning now. Like there is just an appetite to go out to dine and this is an amazing thing. But safety issues aside and God willing, we are able to curb this pandemic and and not just vaccinate everyone here in America, but vaccinate people globally. I think the the issue is from, again, talking to people is I worry how customers are going to react when the dining limits of 30, 40, 50%, whatever are lifted and everything goes back to 100% capacity. Not every restaurant is going to be able to hire their staff. I'm just saying this because I want people to talk more about this. I don't want restaurants to get bad reviews all of a sudden. I hope that people learn how difficult the restaurant industry is and how much work goes into it from a diner's perspective. And I just want to sort of prime everybody that in so many different ways, when the restaurants open up again fully, it's going to be like opening up on day one. The only similarity I have is when we opened up in a, a casino on like a new casino, all the restaurants open up on like the same day or the same week. And it's a clusterfuck because you're planning something that's never been opened up. And when you have more than one restaurant opening up at the same time, like it's hard. And, you know, that's not exactly going to be the same, but a lot of restaurants in your towns are opening up full capacity at the same time. There's going to be a hiring shortage. There's going to be 
a ravenous appetite to go to restaurants. And this needs to happen. But I guarantee you, you're going to have customers that are going to be like, what the F? What the fuck? Like, why is the service slower than it is? Why is this maybe not cooked exactly the way I want it? I'm just asking everyone to buy time. I'm not sure exactly how it's going to fold out because a lot of people aren't going to come back to this industry. If you're a server, which is why I think we need to figure out this whole tipping structure in a different way and how much we're able to pay for food. A lot of restaurant owners don't want to go back to February of 2020. They want to find a better way. And they may want to do less covers. I don't know. I'm not speaking on behalf of anybody. But again, talking to people in this industry, there's concern as to when things get back to 100% capacity, what do we do with the expectations of the diners? And I don't have an answer for that. And I think there's going to be a crazy hiring sort of shortage. It was difficult before COVID-19 began. And I know restaurants, unfortunately, have closed, but we're going to have, it's going to get tight. And I'm not, uh, I want to be positive about what's going to happen. And I think we'll figure out solutions. But I just ask that if you're a diner going to these restaurants, the last thing we need is for you to rip these restaurant owners and the chefs a new asshole, because I guarantee you, you're going to be frustrated. Uh, Maybe not at all the restaurants, but just remind you, just because you're dining in at the restaurants again, doesn't mean that everyone else that works in the restaurants, their worlds haven't changed forever. This is something that we're all collectively going to be in figuring it out. And again, I'm not speaking on behalf of anybody. These are just my opinions. And I think it would be beneficial if we just sort of like level the expectations because the excitement is there, but we just don't have everything ready. A lot of people are short-staffed. And um, if you guys have any ideas how to solve this, give us an email. Send us a hypothesis at asdave at majordomamedia.com. Well, uh, I have rambled on long enough. We should get right into this podcast with Isaac Chung and Chris Ying. I can only imagine how many interviews you have to do for this movie because obviously I'm close with Steve and it's been nonstop. So you, you've been on, uh, I mean, it's gotta be a hundred, hundred interviews plus for this movie. Probably. It's probably been over that. I'm not sure. I know Steven's done a ton. He needs a vacation. He needs to go to Hawaii. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> um, but like when you, made this movie and it's incredibly personal when you put something out there in the world i mean you had an idea did you think it was going to be this much work to promote it let people know what the message is all of this stuff this is the work after the work that no one loves to do i mean i yeah i I can only imagine yeah you know uh yeah steven and i both talked about this that this has been a lot harder than we expected um because we both promoted stuff in the past but this one it just it's so personal. So um, we're always like second guessing ourselves, always trying to figure out, are we saying the right things? And, and it's just because it matters so much to us. So it's been that added component. And then all the things that are going on in the world, just that context of it has made it quite a challenge in a way. And how many people give you the exact same questions about the movie? It's got to be the exact <laughs> same. So part two, twofold. One is so we don't do the same thing, but also just to show you how the world at large looks at a movie that is not what they normally see and they sort of pigeonhole it as this one thing, potentially. I don't know. I don't know how it's been responded because you've been doing all these film festivals over the past year plus, but now it's getting to more of the mainstream and you're doing the more classic interviews. Like, what are people asking over and over again? Um, Well, definitely they'll ask me how much of this story is real. They'll (laughs) ask me why now? Why did you make this film now? Um, they'll ask me these days a lot about the Asian American, um, you know, hate crimes and, and violence against Asians. So it's really the same questions over and over, but that's no, I don't want to put any pressure on you to come up with something new. No, I mean, you, <laughs> no, that, that's how I've already differentiated myself by asking you this meta that's true. softball and we're good. Now I can ask you the same question. That so tell us you. how much of this was true. <laughs> uh, I mean, 
How do you respond to all of these questions about you're an Asian director, you're Korean American this? And, you know, I, again, I, I talk to Steve about it. I talk to anybody that is in this industry of media creating content where we've never had this kind of spotlight. It's not like it's the first, it won't be the last, definitely, but it's different to have the spotlight where people are like, you're the first this, you're the one of the very few people that. Yeah. Wouldn't you want to just be known as, I'm a director? Yeah, you know, what's kind of crazy about this is that I thought I would be getting lots of questions about having made an Arkansas film. Like, I, I was so inspired by a lot of uh, Southern writers, and this was a very farming-oriented film. So I kind of thought everything would go in that direction. And then in the publicity run, so much of it is about the Asian-ness and the Korean-ness. And it made me realize that, oh, okay, so what I thought was kind of unique about this project is actually not the way people on the outside look at it. But I don't mind the questions when they're coming from fellow Asian Americans or, or right. Korean Americans. I feel like there's a different tenor to those questions. And Absolutely. It, yeah, there's more of a challenge when it's not it's not from that community. I mean, it's funny you, you bring that up because when I watched the movie... I was like, this is a, an American story. Mm -hmm. This is an immigrant story. This is a story about everything that I don't know if people would put in that bucket of, of like, this is a story about a family coming in Arkansas. There's a lot of Korean elements that I clearly found incredibly moving. But over and over when I've talked to people and it's not their fault, they saw it as a coming to America story. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we tried to start the film off by saying they've been in California for many years before they, they moved to Arkansas. So that was an intentional thing that this is really set within America. And I don't know, I, I think a lot of American families go through this where they move from one place to another. Um, sometimes I think with this that the questions almost reflect where people are, the, the people who are asking the questions. Not that I'm sitting there just judging them, but you know, you, you kind of get a sense of their own perspective of America when you hear the questions. Well, I mean, I think you broke up my. I mean, the, the film breaks up my own monolithic as an Asian American. You know, I'm used to stories of Asian Americans who came to California and came to New York and moved to the suburbs, and that was the story. And you, I find myself being like, "Oh, that's small-minded too." You're breaking up my own perception of like what a story is for an Asian American person. I think it's so important. Like Dave and I have been talking about this too. It's just. It's not about being the first Asian anything, the first Korean anything. I think that for me, it's can we be the first Asian American movie to show Asian Americans in a different perspective than what's what, mm. what the norm is? Can we show, you know, I, I know you've done lots of work in Rwanda. Can we break up the notion of what a Rwandan person's life is, you know, that there's some monolithic image of it? And seeing, you know, the family in rural agricultural Arkansas was like the mind blower for me. I was like, this is not mm. the story I have seen before. Well, I mean, that, that's very cool to me. I, I always respond to something this artist said that uh, the arts are always about showing the complexity of things or, or breaking down categories. And I feel like if we are doing that, then there's something uh, new about the work. And that's kind of what I hope to do with it. So I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. I read your article in the LA Times recently and about, you know, the the origins of of this script and you, you know, you're on the precipice, you're on the cusp of of throwing away the filmmaking business yeah. to take a, you know, I think you call it just like a regular job and you wrote this piece that was sort of about coming around to the value of your own experience. Like you had tried you've written a lot of things that weren't from your direct experience and I I read that and and I wonder I feel like Dave can speak to that too. Like mm. Dave in food, you try so long to cook the food that people say you're supposed to cook. And, and, you know, like they say, adapt this thing, you know, you were going to adapt a Willa Cather novel, Isaac, in, into a, a screen adaptation. And then you thought, why, why? Like, maybe I should just spend a little time on my own story and maybe there's an audience for it. Like, I, I feel like having read that and knowing Dave's journey in food, like, I think there's just such a parallel to me. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I love what Dave, what you're doing with food and how personal it looks, it seems to you. And, and that does resonate with me and something that's something that drove me in this process too. I just wanted to be very personal with it and kind of shut out all those voices that were telling me what I need to be doing. Well, Isaac, I'm 
so happy to have you on this, talk about this, because the movie, you know, yes, it's nominated for six Oscars, I believe, and you've gotten all of this amazing credit that you deserve. But for me, as someone that is just watching this as the son of Korean immigrants, I was like, fuck. It was so hard to watch in the best way possible because I've never seen it before. And I was talking to Dave Cho about this. We're like, where have we ever been able to connect to a film where we know that no one else... I mean, if you're Asian and you're immigrants, you're going to be able to connect to this story. And it has less to do with the coming to America story, but the marriage, the relationship, the grandmother, the, the all of these things that I know from a Korean perspective... Mm, I don't even have yeah. to ask, I don't even have to ask how much of it's true. It's like there is nuance in how you filmed it and how you portrayed certain the stories that can only happen because it is real. And I was shocked. I was just like, wow. Like everything. Everything about being in Arkansas. Again, I grew up in Virginia. Mm. Places where people don't think, oh, that's where a lot of Korean people are. It's like Korean people are everywhere. Number one. <laughs> And That's true. it's about fitting in the the church. The all of it was something that I could empathize not exactly, but I was unable to. It was a strange feeling to be able to not see myself, but to recognize these moments that I was like, "This is something that I've lived," and I'm probably the age of the kid in the movie too. Yeah, and all those things about driving to the one place that has in you know, Oklahoma City that has the Asian, the Korean market. Like, these <laughs> yeah, are all things, right. everything that most people would never be able to. I think if you're a white or not of Korean descent, you may not really connect. And from my perspective, I was just like, this was something I've, I've, I have a hard time talking about it because I was like, this is real life to me. It was yeah. as real life as I've ever seen on film. I mean, I I appreciate that so much. I I kind of came to a point in my life where I realized um, there are so many things in my past that shaped who I am now, and that they don't fit into those you know neat boxes of what we see in in films typically. Um, so with this film, I, I did want to mine those memories and to kind of look at and wrestle with the things that I felt like I dealt with. Like I think we all heard the same fights growing up from our parents, for instance. And and that defines like who we are as husbands and fathers now. Like I feel like that that still stays with us and those things still echo in us as we have conflicts or as we figure out what's the best way to discipline our kids. And so as I'm wrestling with those ideas now, like I realize I have to go to the past and have to look at those things because those things are always with me. And I think we share that a lot of us share that together and we don't even realize it. Mm-hmm. It was real life, man. That's all. That's oh, why I was you. like, it's, you just don't see that. I, I can't even stress how monumentally important that was. And you made me cry like a baby and not just me. It's like everybody <laughs> that I know that was like of my age range was like, wow. I mean, yeah, you know, I, I mean, you're yeah, Chinese, I, but you know. No, I, I, I wanted to say, I think I do have a grievance. I do want to complain that I think it's messed up to make people cry so close to the end of a movie. Like we're not, we're in a pandemic. So I watched this at home. There's no movie theater, but it is fucked up to make somebody, you're supposed to give us a cool down period to like get calm down, get our composure before we walk back out of the theater with just like red eyes and tears everywhere. I was bawling, bawling, bawling. And then the movie was over. And I was just like, this is, this guy really screwed me. This is not cool. Yeah. I'm I'm sorry, Chris. I'm sorry. Yeah. I want, I want the lights to come right back up right when everyone's crying. (laughs) I remember when we showed our uh, composer Emil Moseri the first cut, and he had he knew the script and everything. But I remember he watched it, and he just started to tear up. And by the end, he just kind of he let himself go. He really wept, and then he just turned to us and said, "You got me." <laughs> he was like cursing at us. Um, but that wasn't like what I was setting out to do. But I, I'm just amazed that that people get so moved by that that moment at the end. Yeah, I think, I mean, to Dave, your question, like, I'm, you know, I'm not Korean American, I'm Chinese American. I, there were multiple moments in this movie where I was like, 
I understand exactly. And like, like you were saying, Dave, it's like, you don't have to ask how much is true. A hundred percent of this movie feels true and honest and is true. And whether it's like a specific memory of, you know, my grandmother doing something similar or having to drink some terrible thing from China that like, God, why the fuck are we drinking this thing? It's awful. <laughs> like, but just even beyond the details, it's, it feels so true to just me. The details are like this, the moment where too much money goes in the offering at church. I was like, you know, that, that moment of stress <laughs> yeah. where you don't even have to, there's no real dialogue. I was like, that has been so many fucking Sunday services. We're like, That's can right. we do this? Or you should do this. You don't ever talk about it. I was like, wow, those are all moments and it's all done in a beautiful way. So yeah. yeah thanks so much. Yeah. You know, I, this did start with a, a bunch of memories. That's kind of how I started this project. So I just jotted down memory after memory. And by the time I ended, I realized I had about 80 memories. And that was the basis for the film. And then some of those were just little distinct memories, like the money in the offering plate. I just remember my mom used to give like a hundred dollars and uh, my dad would wonder, you know, why the hell are you giving so much money? You know, <laughs> little things like that, that I remember. And I thought that's, that's an interesting texture, interesting detail for a story. So I, I put all those things in there. And then what floors me is that there's so many people who tell me that exact same thing would happen to me. And that's been a real treat with this film. <laughs> and to capture the relationship from a child's perspective of the husband and wife was at times hard to watch, but also hilarious, right? I think there's so many, particularly Korean men thinking that I'm doing, I mean, this was my dad in so many ways. They're doing something and they think that their wife has no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you think you're getting you away know, with it. Yeah. But they have every, they know exactly what's happening. And it was just too funny to me. Yeah. I remember when we first came, man, I hope I, I'm worried my dad's going to listen to this now. But <laughs> <laughs> I remember, uh, well, I wasn't born yet. But when, when uh, my parents first came, one of the main sources of contention was that uh, my mom couldn't drive and she wanted to learn how to drive. And so there was some conflict over that. And I felt like that kind of symbolizes that immigrant journey that was happening back then of husband and wife coming together and then realizing that things have to be done differently here. Like both people are on very equal terms and uh, both people need to be able to drive the car. And I remember um, with my mom, there was a constant growth in that of really finding her own way and, and her own agency uh, when all... Throughout Korea, I think she she didn't have that so much. Well, I've been telling people, too, that wanted to watch it or ask my opinion. I was like, I love uh, Marriage Story. It's a great movie. But I was like, this is like my Marriage Story. <laughs> this is like, <laughs> For this us, is real Marriage Story. You know what I mean? This is the, <laughs> the, the Korean Marriage Story more than any other movie I've ever seen. So it's so important, right? Like, this is stuff that just hasn't been shown ever. Yeah. So I can't thank you enough. Oh, man. Thank you. As a father now, and as a kid who remembers this very distinctly, I thought, you know, when the when the kids are throwing paper airplanes that say, stop fighting on them because their parents are fighting in the other room, just, it's exactly what you're saying, Dave, like that marriage story thing. Like, I, I felt that so viscerally to when I was a child, but I also think about, like, just last week, my daughter my wife and I were arguing about something. It wasn't a vicious fight, but we were arguing. And sometimes she can't really tell the difference between like a real fight and a argument, whatever. She was over the art table drawing us little things. And she was like, you can't have these if you don't stop fighting. And to see that <laughs> on the screen, because I was like, that's just so uniquely part of my family. But to see that on screen with what you portrayed, I, I, I don't know. There's, there's this intimacy to the little gestures in your movie. Like everything is just so packed with subtext and meaning that's like easy to grasp, but like you have to be able to see it. You have to like, like you said, you wrote down these memories, these like minute memories. And I thought it's, I thought it was incredible. Um, this episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled over easy or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. 
Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. One thing I wanted to ask both you and Dave when I was watching this with my wife, we had to stop it at one point, sort of just a third of the way, maybe halfway through. And she was like, I'm so nervous. I'm so <laughs> nervous something terrible is going to happen. Yeah. You know, I think it may have just been like when they first go to the church and you see these, the Korean family surrounded by white people. Um, there's just like fear of something overtly terrible and racist happening throughout the, the movie. And I, I wonder if that's like, A, if Dave, you felt that at all, B, Isaac, is there an intentional sort of anxiety to it? Or do you think that's just a product of like the time I'm watching this movie and where I'm just afraid because of everything else going on in the world? I don't know. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I thought the heart attack was going to happen at any moment, even like the mm -hmm. first 10 minutes or something like that. Or the grandmother was, you know, these are things that aren't, I didn't expect to be bad, but these are things that I feel like have happened. You know what I mean? Like mm, yeah. in my life or people that I know is then, so much of at least my family's Korean story is shitty, suffering, sadness. You don't expect good things to happen. <laughs> yeah. You mm -hmm. know, and 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 that's why I wasn't like fearing it. I was like, oh, I, I'm just expecting it to bad shit to happen because this is what happens to, to Korean yeah. people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I guess when I wrote it, I I had kind of this narrative framework I thought I would employ uh, because there's not so much of an underlying tension that's going through the story. I thought I'm going to try to make the audience fall in love with this family in the beginning of the film. And, and I use a lot of humor for that. And, and uh, <laughs> there's a lot of joy and happiness. And then the second half, make sure people feel a little bit terrified of something happening to this family. And so, uh, you know, when you start to see the seams falling apart a bit with this family that they might come apart, I want that to really hit emotionally. So that is something that I, I worked with. But with the racial dynamics... With what you're saying, Chris, it was a little bit of both ends. Like one, there was an intentional part of wanting to play against stereotypes that people might have about, you know, an Asian family moving to the South. What What's that going to look like? I think a lot of people, their first thought is there's going to be racism. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I knew that. And I, I wanted to play against that a bit. And that church scene was meant to do that. But secondly, like there were unintentional moments in which the audience felt that terror more than I did as a filmmaker. I, when, when I showed a friends and family cut of this film, everyone thought Will Patton, the uh, Paul, was going to eat this family alive. Like <laughs> some of them even thought that Paul was stealing all the produce out of the barn in one of the scenes. <laughs> and yeah. so we had to go through and re-edit all of his scenes to remove any moment in which his face looks ambiguously evil or, or we don't know what <laughs> That's he's so thinking. interesting. So that was a surprise to you. Like people, you showed friends and family and they were like, that Paul dude sketches me out. Like, and you yeah. hadn't intended that. That's very interesting. Because I love Paul. I, he's a hero for me, a role model for me. I want to be like Paul. So I, I didn't know just how much people would have a bias against this guy. And, uh, you know, we, we showed that cut during 2019 where a lot of things were even more heated then than, uh, you know, before the election. And, so yeah, that was that was interesting. Hmm. I mean, of all the great things in the movie, and they truly are really memorable, the thing that I keep on going back to and I've talked to my friends about is Steve's English as a Korean man. <laughs> yeah. 
I don't know if people understand mm. how difficult it is to nail that. Did you <laughs> did you instruct him? Did you guide him? Because it is uncanny. I mean, again, like I was talking to Dave Cho, I was like, that guy should win an Oscar just because of that. I don't think people realize how hard it is to do that, to make it a blend of someone that is not a native speaker to then learn Korean because of burning, blah, 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 blah. And then to do it, it's so meta weird. It's just yeah, it's Korean meta English. Weird. <laughs> Only you would understand, Dave, I, I feel. Yeah. It's, it was like, I kept on watching. I was like, wow, that's unbelievable. How did he do that? Because he he wanted to hit that particular balance of a person who's been in America for X number of years, you know, and and then also his Korean, he had to hit that at a certain fluency on that 1980s dad level. Um, <laughs> so it was it was a tightrope, and I think he was most nervous about um, the way that Asian Americans or Korean Americans would think of his accent. Like that was something that stressed him out a lot uh, as we were preparing the role. So that was a, a constant conversation that we had. And I didn't really like guide him into the exact accent he should use, but he would just come and use me as a sounding board every now and then, which was, which is kind of fun uh, <laughs> to hear the different options that he's thinking of. But what he landed on, we, we just thought was great. And um, we even ADR'd some of the ones where he felt he could do better. So we, we got back in the studio with some of them and, and he would, redo it because he was constantly trying to refine it. So he, he's a real perfectionist. I don't know of any time I've ever seen that happen in any movie or TV where someone's trying to do a version of the language that they speak fluently, but pretend from a position of fluency from another language. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was so <laughs> crazy to me. And it's perfect. It's really perfect. Yeah. And it's that kind of difficulty where I'm like, Oscar voters, you don't understand. This, is, <laughs> this shit is hard. <laughs> yeah. I hope you told them. And at no point, like, devolve into, like, pigeon, you know, like, just, like, to keep it really feeling authentic and not, like, farcical is amazing. Right, right. We, we, we were saying we'd never want it to draw attention to itself or to make it seem like he's making fun of anybody or imitating anyone. So I hope you tell him that you appreciate it because um, he worked hard on it. I mean, if like Daniel Day-Lewis can win an Oscar because he's playing someone that's severely handicapped in my left foot or something like that, these level of difficulty that you have to overcome, I'm telling you, that is one of the hardest things to nail is the Korean dad English circa 19 <laughs> early 80s. You're so right. <laughs> it really is hard because all of us try to imitate our parents' English, Konglish, whatever. I mean, Chris, I don't know if you do, but I've never seen anybody actually nail it because it's it always sounds this, so bad when we do. Sounds it. bad. Yeah, it's damn near impossible. So I'm not trying to diminish any of the amazing achievements in the movie, but that was the thing that stuck with me the most. Like, God damn it, how did you do that? Yeah, it's Daniel Day <laughs> so Lewis good. level. That's right. Yeah, it really was Daniel <laughs> Day Lewis level. But um, you know, you brought this up. You made this movie finish filming what 2018? 2019. We we shot in the summer and premiered 2020. So we made it all within one year too. Got all the financing and got through with the cut all within like 11 months. So it's really quick. And uh, you got to get ready for the Oscars. Congratulations. Uh, <laughs> Is that in, like in a weird way, the Korean Asian way, like you can't really be happy about it? <laughs> or you're just like, I'm over the moon. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> I told myself, I'm just going to be grateful. I'm just going to go with the flow. And like, my wife's a therapist, right? So I'm like, <laughs> I'm trying to embrace the inner me and all that stuff. But the day after, man, I, I was thinking, I, I don't know if I want to bring this up, but the day after was the Atlanta stuff. And that was what made it hard to even celebrate because we, we had this day of joy and then, and then this news just started coming in. And I've been more sitting with that than I have with the Oscars, to be honest. And trying to figure out what does Minari mean in the context of that, or what does, like, I, I always feel like things happen for a reason. Not that there is a good reason for that happening, but that the timing is lined up so that maybe, I don't know, if we're meant to speak into it or something, I, I, I have no idea. So I've been, I've been wondering and worrying about all that and just trying to grieve and all these different things. I, I think you guys, you guys have been there too. You guys know just how difficult these past weeks have been in the context of all that, because you're public figures as well. Um, well, 
you you bring up a really important point and anyone that's been sort of just being alive as an Asian American knows that none of this is new. Uh, it's now just sort of top of mind culturally. Yeah. But everyone's sort of tasked with what are you going to do about it, right? How are you going to address it? And there's a lot of different ways to do it. You can donate money to AAPI causes, raise awareness a lot of different ways. But, you know, my, my personal take is the people that have the opportunity with media platforms or any platform that has sort of an audience is to pursue excellence. And mm, I think yeah. outside of, say, having a, like an Asian Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan-like figure in sport, that would be the most amazing way, I think, to dispel a lot of notions of what it is to be Asian in, in America. The other way is in film and TV and music. And we have the dominance of K-pop, but it would be different kind of music. And I think Parasite and their dominance last year, as amazing that it was, it wasn't an American film, right? And yeah, yeah. This is something that I hope does as well as Parasite. And even if it doesn't, it's going to have a big impact for a lot of people, particularly people that are Asian. I want them to realize that we need to support this. We need more people to enter the arts in different ways. And, and if you really want to make a change, I think it has to be done culturally and to dispel stereotypes and a lot of terrible misperceptions is, is exactly this, is, is how the rest of America perceives winning. And I feel like you got to win in this game. And that's why I'm rooting more than ever that you guys kick ass at the Oscars. Again, I could care less about the Oscars. You know what I mean? I know that it's about winning and it's amazing about getting the recognition, but I think what it means is even more important, particularly right now. Yeah, I've been reflecting on that, you know, for something like the Oscars and and for us as a team, like somehow it takes on a different meaning for us because we're, it feels like we are bringing the community with us. Like that's what we want because we made this because we wanted to say, hey, we're human beings. That's like fundamental to this story. We're, we're trying to express our humanity with it. And we want to bring everybody with us on that. So that's kind of what we're, what we're thinking about. And so going into the Oscars, we might not win anything and that's totally fine, but uh, I, I just hope it feels like everybody's there with us. Well, Isaac, if you only win one, I mean, come on, it's not good enough. You gotta, you gotta sweep, or it's not a success. <laughs> All or nothing. If you don't go six for six, it's, it, you know, we don't want to talk to you. Yeah. Oh man, <laughs> it's too much pressure. The other, the other moment. I mean, it's just speaking to what you're talking about about perceptions and and all of this. The the other moment I stopped the movie when I was watching with my wife, I stopped it to say like, what do you think about this grandmother character? Because to me, she was immediately recognizable, if not exactly somebody from my life. Like, I recognized this person. And, you know, I wasn't sure if my white wife had ever thought about, like, what a, you know, kind of older Asian person who doesn't speak English and is full of life and, like, is, is kind of, like, outrageous is like. And she's like, I think she's awesome. But, like, if for no other reason right now, as so many of these crimes are perpetrated against elderly Asian people that aren't understood or are misunderstood. I thought to see a woman who was just so undeniably strong and like so connected to like her humanity. You know what I mean? Like mm. there's, that's part of it is like, she's so, so human and like elderly, like Asian people are so connected to like just the raw existence of being a human without being clouded by like whatever perception, social media, any of that shit. It's just like yeah. what I feel, what I eat, what, how it makes my body feel, what's going on with my family, money and in life. And to see yeah. that portrayed in this way and for people to see like, you don't understand why this older Asian person is talking loudly and quickly and gesturing because you don't understand the language, but to see what they're saying and see that brought to life, I think is could not be more important right now. That's so cool. Yeah. I thought that too. I, I thought, I love how funny she is. She's I feel so like funny. <laughs> there's something in that about uh, her humanity and how full of life she is. And she's so funny. And uh, I wonder if that kind of surprises people going into this film, uh, what they expect from, from a grandma coming in from Korea like that. And my grandma was like that. I mean, she, she had a very tragic life. Like her husband was a soldier in the Korean War. He died when she was like, 20 years old and 
she was a widow. She had to do all kinds of crazy jobs and um, face abuse from men in order to try to make a, a living for her and my mom. So I kind of knew a little background about her, but the way that she actually lived in real life was not at all reflective of that. Or maybe it was. Maybe maybe her life was a response to that because she was just full of joy, full of life, always wanting to laugh, always wanting to tease me, always <laughs> wanting to teach me how to say the worst Korean curse words, you know, <laughs> uh, especially during Hatu, uh, that Korean card game. I don't know that that to me she's a hero. That's that's the sort of uh, way a hero lives and approaches life. So Yoon Yo Jung, uh, hats off to her. She did an incredible job with that role. Yeah, I mean she's basically for those that don't know she's like the Korean Meryl Streep. You know what I mean? Like she's like acting superstar. Yeah, um, Meryl Streep's the American Yoon oh. Yo Jung. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for correcting me. Um, <laughs> Man, she's got so she she's got so many good moments. Again, just like just thinking about it right now, just when she starts unpacking her her suitcase from Korea, like I live that, you know. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, these are, these are all these memories, the eighty memories you had that a lot of us can share. So uh, again, never seeing this in film or reading about it, it's overwhelming at times to be like, wow, it's not just me. Um, mm. These moments that you remember are things that are stuck in my consciousness somehow, some way. So um, she's hilarious and she's just like my mom's mom too. So uh, it was great. It's so cool. What is the Korean curse word that gets translated when they're, whenever they're playing cards, whenever she's calling somebody a bastard, what is the, what is the Korean word she's saying? Well, she just adds nom to things and that's just a general way to say <laughs> bastard. <laughs> All right. But, I just uh, wanted to learn She a said bit. such an archaic curse word. She said yenbyung and that's like, Literally, it is kind of like a disease. Ty- I think it's like typhoid or something. <laughs> and that's like an olden day curse word. I had no idea. I had to ask a Korean translator about that one. Oh, she and threw that one hilarious. in herself. She threw, she, she just she threw, threw that in. one out there? Oh, yeah, man, she's that's riffing. Good. That's so yeah. good. Um, it's weird. You, when people make movies, it comes out so much later than, you know, they, they film it and then it comes out and there's always this lag of time and now you're doing press for something you've done a while back. And with all that's happening in the world today, as you mentioned, the domestic terrorist hate crime killing in Atlanta and the beating of the 65-year-old woman in New York City. And, mm-hmm. you know, how do you want to move forward to express yourself? And is it even your responsibility? Can you just make art for your art's sake? Or now does it always have to have a message? I do feel like I have to have something to say. Like, I do think there is something about that, but what that thing is, I'm not, I I want whatever it is that I'm trying to say with any film to not meet the present moment, but always um, try to aspire to some kind of timeless thing that we want to be saying, such as like with Minari, there's a lot in there that's about love and showing love for each other. And and, um, I think that's a timeless sort of thing. And I guess I'm interested in that. Like, I think a lot about my daughter. I think about the fact that she'll probably be watching these films way in the future when nobody else cares anymore. She'll she'll think, hey, I want to see something that my dad made. And and I just want to make sure that it's still relevant to her somehow. And uh, that's a personal element that I've I've kind of oriented my compass to in a way. What are you working on? What do you have that's like post-Minari? Um... Well, I, I, I kind of have a few things that I'm developing right now, but it seems like one that's gaining the most momentum is this adaptation of Your Name, which is a Japanese animated film. And I'm working with J.J. Uh, Abrams' company and Paramount for that one. And it's been great working with, with these guys. Um, and we're hoping to maybe film it this year. If not, maybe it's next year, but um, it's something that we're really trying to do. Hmm. Awesome. Like, what happens if Marvel is like, we want you to direct uh, the next, uh, I don't even know what the hell is out there. You know, <laughs> again, I have friends that are directors and it's a real concern and it's a good concern, but it's like, what do you do? Right? Like, do you, if you say no, then like, I feel like in restaurants, if you do yeah. a restaurant that is big, splashy, huge, like 300 C plus, or you do, 
a fast food thing and you find other ways to get revenue, that allows you to do the cooler, smaller, intimate things mm. and, and not have a problem getting the financing and stuff. And I feel that's somewhat similar in, in the world of film. You know, a personal project like Mirari will certainly, I, I can't imagine, is going to get a lot of awesome opportunities, but do you have the temptation to do a giant special effects movie that will like, it's a failure if it doesn't generate a billion dollars <laughs> in revenue? Can, can I ask you, what would be the restaurant equivalent of that? Of like the Marvel, you know. Yeah, entry. it'd be like opening up in La, like Las Vegas, you know. Um, mm, yeah. Just doing something that you're, that is seen as a sellout. Oh, right? I see. Which is basically my, you know, what most people, including myself, would say, <laughs> that's what I do now. So, you know, like. <laughs> so, you know. so it's, it's, it's Minari 2, where the creek turns out to be radioactive, where they're growing all the Minari and they eat it and they come back and they all have superpowers <laughs> in the next one. Like, that's a good, that's that a great interesting film to you? idea, actually, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> No, but I, I think, I don't know if you feel this way, but I, I do kind of feel like there are different spaces in which we can work. And if it's, if there's some interesting way to bring in the personal into those spaces, then why not? You know, I don't have anything going on with Marvel, but um, my feeling is always like, if there's some story that, that really attracts me and that feels very human, I'm interested. Yeah, but we'll see. I hope it's not seen as selling out. I think that's kind of sad. We sometimes limit ourselves in that way. No, and that's what I'm trying to say. I think we need to really aspire to sell out. And I think selling out means having the largest reach humanly possible, right? And these are all ways to affect real meaningful change. And if you were going to do like the next Iron Man or whatever, Wolverine or Incredible Hulk, like I can understand maybe it's not cool to the cinephiles out there, but I mean, I'd love to see a film, you know, but it's a strange place to sort of juggle your artistic expression and, and, and integrity yeah, simultaneously. I think about like Kelly Marie Tran and what she did with Star Wars. I mean, the amount of goodwill or, or change that she brought through what she did and for what she stood up for, like people like that, I, I feel like we just got to admire them and really cheer for more things like that, I would think. Disney executives, hopefully they're listening to this and be like, hey. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think that because you know, we talked about it with Kelly Marie Tran when she was on the show too, but I, I think on the reverse side of, not even the reverse, but like another aspect of the pressure not to quote unquote sell out would be, I would love to see you succeed on terms outside of Asian stories too. You know, I, it would be such a shame for people to be like, if, you're, if your next movie had one or no Asian characters in it, and it wasn't about an Asian family, and it was telling other stories that interest you and are, are universal, I would feel upset for people to be like, oh, he didn't, he's an Asian director, he's not taking this opportunity to put Asian people forward. I, I just want to see mm. Asian artists succeed beyond, you know, don't just tell your Asian stories over here. Don't just cook Asian food. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I would like to see success outside of that. Right. I, I think that's so true. I, I'm sure, David, you, you've gone through that with the restaurants as well. But yeah, I, I, I really like that idea of, you know, that that is a point of progress and of agency and power, I feel, that artists are given if they're allowed to do what's inside of them rather than it being put from the outside onto them. Um, and, and I kind of hope for the same. But if Marvel comes with those Asian Avengers, you got to say yes. Asian <laughs> Avengers, say yes to that. Yeah, Let's do that. that. Yeah. Let's do that. <laughs> um, Isaac, we could talk to you for another hour plus, but we will not do that considering you've been beaten down with interviews for, for a few oh, months. Oh, no, man. This was relaxing, actually. This was was good. <laughs> you didn't ask me anything that I have been asked before, I think. I feel like it was all different. So <laughs> it was good. And I, and I want to say that uh, I, I was thinking when I was going to be on this show, I wanted to tell you, my last celebratory meal was at one of your restaurants before my wife and I, we moved to LA. And we're so happy also that you opened a restaurant here because we go to that, we go to Major Domo quite a lot where we, we order from them anytime we want a special thing. So you're part of our lives and uh, food is, it goes straight to our, our souls. So thank you so much for what you do. Well, listen, let's, uh, let's do you one better on that. I want to like cook for you guys and we'll, we'll do a dinner uh, when it's safe and acceptable soon enough. So I, I'd oh, like man. to make that happen. I'm trying to play it cool here. That's, that would be amazing. <laughs> and, and again, and, and, and hopefully, Isaac, 
that'll happen as a celebratory dinner when you went six for six because there's no dinner for you if you go five <laughs> no for six. Celebrations no celebrations for five dinner. for six. Oh, no dinner. I'm to find out if I can rig this thing then. Some corruption here because I, I want that meal. All right, guys. That was Isaac Chung. You need to check out Mirari. If you've already seen it, check it out again. And if you've already seen it, convince someone else that hasn't seen it to see it. And it's more important than ever before that there's excellence and and that Asians and people of color win these awards as frivolous as they might seem. So I'm rooting for them because, you know, Steve and Isaac and others can win an Oscar. I mean... That, to me, is one of the best things that can happen to change the perception of Asian-American perception in this country. Fingers crossed for them, and uh, I'm just glad that uh, they're kicking butt. But uh, stay tuned for a podcast next week. Check out Recipe Club. We did a good one on flatbreads. Brian Ford made a very, very good recipe, but it was not what I I thought it was going to be a lot quicker. But... um, It was a good one. All those recipes were delicious. Give us five stars on our iPod, iTunes page, or however you rate this podcast, which is basically Apple. And I know a lot of people are listening on Spotify, but uh, that's it, guys. Stay safe.